This week on Selected Shorts, Hugh Dancy and Claire Danes trade barbs. He's lazy. I've never seen him do anything. She's rich, but doesn't help the poor. In fact, she often shortchanges milliners and hairdressers. She has no heart. A story by Anton Chekhov transforms a real-life husband and wife into a couple at war. This week features stories about the stage, and though you can't see it from where you sit, the lights have just grown dim, people are hurrying to their seats, and the curtain is about to come up. I'm your host, Meg Wallitzer, and you're listening to Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. As our listeners know, we record nearly all of our stories on the show in front of live audiences. Performing in front of an audience is the most elemental form of storytelling. While most people know me as a writer, I'm often drawn to the stage as well. I think partly it's because being in the audience lets you participate in the experience on stage and actually imagine yourself up there. Everyone is in it together, participating in the big dream and drama of it all, and anything can happen. Today's show is dedicated to the theater and those of us who love it. We've got stories about actors, musicians, and audiences, stories from onstage, backstage, and from way, way offstage. Our first story is a short satire with a really long title. It's about immersive live productions like Sleep No More, a loose retelling of Macbeth that unfolds as audience members wander through an old hotel. Or, if you haven't heard of that, imagine a haunted house in which the ghouls are very self-important. The story was written by Rachel Klein, who has seen her work published online in places including Reductress and The New Yorker. Performing it is a theater regular who starred in the Broadway production of Tootsie, as well as series including Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Here's Santino Fontana reading Rachel Klein's piece, Audience Instructions for Our Immersive-slash-Experimental Theater Production in an Abandoned Middle School in Bushwick. If you are receiving this missive, you have purchased a ticket for The Ducks Have Flown an immersive-slash-experimental theater experience inspired and maddeningly loosely based on both the novel The Catcher in the Rye and the 1944 film Gaslight. (laughs) Congratulations on your good taste, your sense of adventure, and your stout and noble heart. Please note the following in preparing for your upcoming visit to our tiny and wondrous universe. One... It goes without saying, you must both read the book and watch the film, despite the fact that the performance will bear little resemblance to either. Many of our scenelets, scenes without formal prohibitive structure or beholdenness to theatrical or social conventions, contain Easter eggs that can only be discovered and recognized by an astute observer well-steeped in the imagery, motifs, tropes, and symbols of our inspiration texts. Two, smoking is prohibited throughout the performance, as is texting, eating, laughing, crying, loving, and foraging. (laughs) A feed bag will be provided for you and will be your only sustenance for the duration of the performance. Three, no flash photography, note-taking, cryptography, card counting, or body switching, please. (laughs) 
Four, topiary is a living and vital part of the sensory experience of our performancizing. Performing, that is, less about presentationality and more about engagement with the senses and the moment of discovery. If you are allergic to any growing things, even and especially non-indigenous tendril species and sensuous fruits, please speak to your doctor about taking an immune suppressant in advance of the performance. Five. Please contact us at least 24 hours prior to the start of the performance if you have an aversion to tight spaces, low oxygenation, or being set on fire. <laughs> we cannot promise to honor any requests, but knowing your preferences will help us to know exactly where your vulnerabilities lie and how we might best exploit them to ensure that the performance has the greatest impact on your body and soul. Six, it is recommended that you self-administer an enema <laughs> at least three hours prior to the start of the performance, but no more than six hours prior to the end. We have found that audience experientiators who follow this instruction have an eminently more enjoyable and impactful experience. <laughs> Seven, a package will arrive for you in the mail. Bury it without opening it. <laughs> Never speak of it to anyone. Ever. Eight, we may use the personal information you provided on our registration form to contact people from your past and integrate them into the performance space. If you do see anyone you may know or have known, an ex-lover, a deceased grandparent or pet, the pharmacist from your old CVS when you lived in Queens for a summer, please do not speak to them unless addressed directly, lest you dismantle the fragile and tenuous boundary between audience and performing, living and dead. If for any reason you feel you cannot meet the expectations above, please place your ticket in the mouth of a pure white dove and release it into the sky at dusk. Otherwise, we look forward to seeing, hearing, touching, tasting, and smelling you this weekend. Thank you very much. I imagine that felt much more intensive and fictional when none of us had ever experienced COVID protocols. That was Santino Fontana performing Rachel Klein's story, audience instructions for our immersive-slash-experimental theater production in an abandoned middle school in Bushwick. Which, if you received an email with that in the subject line, I think you might elect to eat the ticket price and stay home and watch Netflix. Fontana hosted the live show from which all of these recordings come, selected Shorts' first show back after the worst of the pandemic. We really wanted to give our audience a chance to get engaged and in the safest way possible, so we asked Fontana to lead the crowd in a Broadway hum-along. It's like a sing-along, but with fewer airborne droplets. The results were pretty charming, so we thought we'd share a little snippet. Now, I don't think a return to the theater would be complete without the chance to, in some way, acknowledge, even revel in, the presence of your fellow audience members. To do that in the safest way possible, we're not going to do a sing-along, <laughs> but a hum-along. 
That's right, we're going to turn the Sharp Theater into the world's largest kazoo. Here's how we do it. I am going to start with a line from a famous musical, and when I stop, you will hum the next line along with me. Ready? Yeah, we're doing this. Okay? The hills are alive with the sound of music. Beautiful, very good, very good. Second, some enchanted evening, you will see a stranger. Beautiful, beautiful. This is actually going very well. Um, this one's a little trickier. Don't record this, please. Come on, babe, why don't we paint the town? I'm gonna rouge my knees and pull my stockings down. Start the car, I know it would be spot when the gin is cold, but the piano is hot. It's just a noisy home where there's a nightly brawl. Oh, that's good. That's good. Very good. Well done, everyone. Give yourselves a round of applause. The Symphony Space Choir. That was Santino Fontana leading the Selected Shorts audience in its first-ever Broadway show tune, Hum Along. Now let's turn to the actor's life, or what becomes of it long after the curtain closes. This next piece is by Amber Sparks, the author of the story collections And I Do Not Forgive You and The Unfinished World and Other Stories. The performer reading the story was on Broadway in American Psycho and Mean Girls, she has also popped up in films such as First Reformed. Here's Christina Olibato with Amber Sparks' story, Our Mutual Theater Friend. The problem, in plain terms. She once was an actress. Even in younger years, she played the boozy diva, hovering in the wings, faintly sardonic, until the crucial point in the musical, when she took over the stage and sang the big, sizzling, fourth-wall-shattering solo number that exposed the hypocrisy and artifice of the whole show. Audiences loved her, directors loved her, reviewers loved her. No matter how little stage time she got, she was always the main draw and the de facto star. The problem, in plainer terms, she still thinks of herself as an actress. She hasn't acted for many years, retiring early after a disastrous marriage and a quiet breakdown, but she still hangs out in the metaphorical wings, drinking too much and expounding on life with a level of wit inappropriate to shopping for shoes at Nordstrom Rack. She explodes every now and then in the most embarrassing fashion, usually at children's birthday parties. She doesn't sing, thank God, but her dramatic speech patterns at these moments rival Norma Desmond's and confuse her friends small children, who have never seen Golden Age cinema or Sondheim. 
During the latest outburst, she waxes on at Brooklyn Davis's fourth birthday party for a goddamn 10 minutes, claims Brooklyn Davis's father, about the vulgarity of modern pizza parlors, upstaging Elmo and Abby and Cookie Monster, not to mention the pirate-themed face painters. Their mutual friends convene the next day at the dog park, positive it is time to take action. Marcus's birthday is next Saturday, says Pam Perkins, and we rented a bounce house. It cost a fortune, she says. And she's supposed to be seeing Hamilton with Jack and me the weekend after, says Jenny Jackson. Jenny and Jack are child-free and feel unfairly saddled with their eccentric friend whenever they head to the movies or theater. God knows, says Jenny darkly, what she'll think of the show or when she'll decide to stand up and say it. <laughs> she seems so unhappy, says Anna Lowenstein. I, I want to help, but, but when you ask about her life, says Aisha Rollins, all you get is a weird, albeit witty, retort. Exactly, says Jonathan Yan. She called me my dull darling in front of the waiter at Shake Shack the other day. <laughs> The others nod. It, it can't go on. Indeed, it's getting worse. Her outbursts were once rare and only at dinner parties and diners late at night. But she seems to have an opinion almost every day now. And she chooses her moments carefully, gathering drama and timing to her like a very loud dress. She needs an audience again, says someone. But none of them have to say it. They turn around and they're on a park bench is a very old man. Brown teeth, white hair, skin like an old saddle. He laughs. Aisha Rollins glares. Your friend needs an audience, he says again. And Jonathan shakes his head. She'll never sing again, says Jonathan. She's lost the voice. It's part of the problem. The old man laughs. Doesn't need a voice to have an audience, he says. Just needs this. His voice is congested, tubercular, and Jenny moves away just slightly. He hands Jonathan a small glass ball, a snow globe with no snow. Inside, a tiny wooden theater stage sits, apron empty, curtain down, tiny people sitting at the edge of tiny seats. Something about it speaks of waiting, of a deep, long hush. All the friends stare into it hushed and caught up in the waiting, too. Give it to her, says the old man, as a gift. And then he's gone, the air strangely still where he stood a moment ago. They blink, the sun in their eyes after the cool dark of the miniature theater. I bet he doesn't even have a dog, says Anna. What a weirdo, they all agree with relief. But then they gift it to her anyway, for reasons none of them quite understand. Jonathan is her favorite. They were briefly lovers long before he married his husband, and he makes the trek to deliver it. Her studio apartment is tragic because it's nothing like appropriate to her outsized personality and fading star persona. The blinds are dusty and off-white, the carpets are beige, the furniture is flawed pottery barn purchased ages ago at a warehouse sale. Come in, darling, she says, as always. She's pretending to work when he knocks, and she goes right back to it after she lets him in, pounding away at a computer keyboard. For Christ's sake, she has no idea how to type. 
She's claimed for ages to be freelancing, though she never says what for, and anyway, everyone knows she got a fat settlement when she divorced her broker husband. Jonathan hands her the globe. She looks at it, her eyes watering, her ashtray full. Her hands are still beautiful, translucent as they catch the soft light inside the thing. Enjoy it, he says. And then he does the strangest thing. He runs. He'll tell his husband later he has no idea why. A middle-aged man running down four flights of stairs and into traffic like a lunatic. But really, he runs because he sees her face as she holds it. That glow and that head tilt and that proud eye. Pure, glorious Swanson. And he goes, no want to see what happens next. What happens next? She doesn't show up for Marcus's bounce house birthday, and she fails to keep her theater date with Jenny and Jack. She doesn't call, and she doesn't text, and she doesn't write, and she doesn't answer her door. She doesn't show up at Nordstrom Rack, or at Macy's, or at any of her shopping haunts. She doesn't opine anywhere on anything. Anna and Jonathan finally convince her landlord to let them in. The landlord sniffs, disgust pulling his mouth down. He's sure she's probably a corpse, but there's no body anywhere, only an overturned pottery barn wicker chair, the familiar garnet walls hung with gilt-framed show posters, the steam radiators draped with her wet clothing since she never bothered to get a dryer. Jonathan goes looking, hands and knees for the globe. He's sure, quite unexpectedly, of where she is. He wonders how he'll square his previously practical worldview with what he finds. He sees the glint of glass near the sofa, shouts for Anna. He closes his eyes, opens them, looks. But he only sees glass shards and glitter, a few plastic seats and stage fragments scattered over the beige carpet. Their friend is nowhere here. And he and Anna pick up glass and try not to cut their hands on this dreadfully stupid illusion. Christina Olibato read Our Mutual Theater Friend by Amber Sparks. Look, if I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times. Don't give your actor friends magical snow globes with miniature theaters in them. Instead, just do what I do. Give everyone a scented candle. Our theater-themed stories have taken us backstage and offstage, and now we'll step into the spotlight for a tale from the 40s about a jazz drummer. Its author is Anne Petrie. Her evocative works, including The Street and The Narrows, center around the lives of black people both in the Jim Crow South and in urban centers of the 20th century. You can listen here for the way that sometimes, in the heat of a powerful and expressive moment of performance, the art can become bigger than the artist. Reading the story, we have another theater stalwart, who's appeared on Broadway in shows including Hillary and Clinton, as well as series including Boardwalk Empire. This is Peter Francis James reading Solo on the Drums by Anne Petrie. The orchestra had a week's engagement at the Randler Theater at Broadway and 42nd Street. His name 
was picked out in lights on the marquee, the name of the orchestra, and then his name underneath by itself. There had been a time when he would have been excited by it and stopped to let his mind and his eyes linger over it lovingly. Kid Jones, the name, his name, up there in lights that danced and winked in the brassy sunlight. And at night, his name glittered up there on the marquee as though it had been sprinkled with diamonds. The people who pushed their way through the crowded street looked up at it and recognized it and smiled. He used to eat it up, but not today. Not after what had happened this morning. He just looked at the sign with his name on it. There it was. Then he noticed that the sun had come out, and he shrugged and went on inside the theater to put on one of the cream-colored suits and get his music together. After he finished changing his clothes, he glanced in the long mirror in his dressing room. He hadn't changed any, same face, no fatter, no thinner, no gray hair, nothing. He frowned because he felt that the things that were eating him up inside ought to show, but they didn't. When it was time to go out on the stage, he took his place behind the drums, not talking, just sitting there. The orchestra started playing softly. He made a mental note of the fact that the boys were working together as smoothly as though each one had been oiled. The long gray curtains parted. One moment they were closed, and then they were open, silently, almost like magic. The high-powered spots flooded the stage with light. He could see specks of dust gliding down the wide beams of light. Under the bands of light, the great space out front was all shadow. Faces slowly emerged out of it. Disembodied heads and shoulders that slanted up and back almost to the roof. He hit the drums lightly, regularly, a soft barely discernible rhythm, a background, a repeated emphasis for the horns and the piano. The man with the trumpet stood up, and the first notes came out sweet and clear and high. Kid Jones kept up the drum accompaniment, slow, careful, soft and he felt his left eyebrow lift itself and start to twitch as the man played the trumpet. It happened whenever he heard the trumpet. The notes crept up higher, 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 so high that his stomach sucked in against itself, then a little lower and stronger, a sound sustained, the rhythm of it beating against his ears until he was filled with it and sighing with it. He wanted to cover his ears with his hands because he kept hearing a voice that whispered the same thing over and over again. The voice was trapped somewhere under the roof, caught and held there by the trumpet. I'm leaving, I'm leaving, I'm leaving. The sound took him straight back to the rain, the rain that had come with the morning. He could see the beginning of the day, raw and cold. He was at home, but he was warm. 
because he was close to her, holding her in his arms. The rain and the wind cried softly outside the window. And now, well, he felt as though he were floating up and up and up on that long blue note of the trumpet. He half closed his eyes and rode up on it. It had stopped being music. It was that whispering voice making him shiver, hating it and not being able to do anything about it. I'm leaving. It's the guy who plays the piano. I'm in love with him. I'm leaving now today. Rain in the streets, heat gone, food gone. Everything's gone because a woman's gone. It's everything you ever wanted, he thought. It's everything you never get, everything you ever had, everything you ever lost. It's all there in the trumpet. Pain and hate and trouble and peace and quiet and love. The last note stayed up in the ceiling, hanging on and on. The man with the trumpet had stopped playing, but Kid Jones could still hear that last note in his ears, in his mind. The spotlight shifted and landed on Kid Jones, the man behind the drums. The long beam of white light struck the top of his head and turned him into a pattern of light and shadow. Because of the cream-colored suit and shirt, his body seemed to be encased in light. But there was a shadow over his face so that his features blended and disappeared. His hairline receded so far back that he looked like a man with a face that never ended, a man with a high, long face and dark, dark skin. He caressed the drums with the brushes in his hands. They responded with a whisper of sound. The rhythm came over, but it had to be listened for. It stayed that way for a long time, low, insidious, repeated. Then he made the big brass drum growl and pick up the same rhythm. The Marquis of Brund, pianist with the band, turned to the piano. The drums and the piano talked the same rhythm, the piano high, a little more insistent than the drums. The Marquis was turned sideways on the piano bench. His left foot tapped out the rhythm. His cream-colored soup sharply outlined the bulkiness of his body against the dark gleam of the piano. The drummer and the pianist were silhouetted in two separate brilliant shafts of light. The drums slowly dominated the piano. The rhythm changed. It was faster. Kid Jones looked out over the crowded theater as he hit the drums. He began to feel as though he were the drums, and the drums were he. The theater throbbed with the excitement of the drums. A man sitting near the front shivered, and his head jerked to the rhythm. A sailor put his arm around the girl sitting beside him, took his hand and held her face still, and pressed his mouth close over hers, close, 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 until their faces seemed to melt together. Her hat fell off, and neither of them moved. His hand dug deep deep into her shoulder, and still they didn't move. A kid sneaked in through a side door and slid into an aisle seat. His mouth was wide open, and he clutched his cap with both hands tight and hard against his chest as he listened. The drummer forgot he was in the theater. There was only him and the drums, and they were far away, long gone. 
He was holding Lulu, Helen, Susie, Mamie close in his arms. All of them, all those girls blended into that one girl who was his wife. The one who said, I'm leaving. And it said it over and over again this morning while the rain dripped down the window panes. When he hit the drums again, it was with the thought that he was fighting with the piano player. He was choking the Marquis of Brun. He was putting a knife in clean between his ribs. He was slitting his throat with a long straight blade. Take my woman, take your life. The drums leaped with a fury that was in him. The men in the band turned their heads toward him. A faint astonishment showed in their faces. He ignored them. The drums took him away from them, took him back and back and back in time and space. He built up an illusion. He was sending out the news. Grandma died. The foreigner in the litter has an old disease and will not recover. The man across the big water is sleeping with the chief's daughter. Kill, kill, kill. The war goes well with the men with the bad smell and the loud laugh. It goes badly with the chiefs with the round heads and the peacock's walk. It is cool in the deep track of the forest, cool and quiet. The trees talk softly. They speak of the dance tonight. The young girl from across the lake will be there. Her waist is slender and her thighs are rounded. Then the words he wanted to forget were all around Kid Jones again. I'm leaving, I'm leaving, I'm leaving. He couldn't help himself. He stopped hitting the drums and stared at the Marquis of Brund, a long, malevolent look filled with hate. There was a restless, uneasy movement in the theater. He remembered where he was. He started playing again. The horn played a phrase, soft and short. The drums answered. The horn said the same thing all over again. The drums repeated it. The next time it was more intricate. The phrase was turned around. It went back and forth and up and down. And the drums said it over exactly the same. He knew a moment of panic. This was where he had to solo again. And he wasn't sure he could do it. He touched the drums like they quivered and answered him. And then it was almost as though the drums were talking about his own life. The woman in Chicago who hated him. The girl with the round, soft body who had been his wife, who had walked out on him this morning in the rain. The old woman who was his mother, the same woman who lived in Chicago and who hated him because he looked like his father. His father who had seduced her and left her years ago. He forgot the theater. Forgot everything but the drums. He was welded to the drums, sucked inside them, all of him. His pulse beat, his heart beat. He had become part of the drums. They had become part of him. He made the big drum rumble and reverberate. He went a little mad on the big drum. Again and again, he filled the theater with a sound of thunder. The sound seemed to come not from the drums, but from deep inside himself. It was a sound that was being wrenched out of him, a violent, raging, roaring sound. And it issued from him, he thought. 
This is the story of my love. This is the story of my hate. This is all there is left of me. And the sound echoed and re-echoed far up under the roof of the theater. When he finally stopped playing, he was trembling. His body was wet with sweat. He was surprised to see that the drums were sitting there in front of him. He hadn't become part of them. He was still himself, Kid Jones, master of the drums, greatest drummer in the world, selling himself a little piece at a time, every afternoon, twice every evening. Only this time, he had topped all his other performances. This time, playing like this, after what had happened in the morning, he had sold all of himself, not just a little piece. Someone kicked his foot. Bow, you ape, what's the matter with you? He bowed from the waist, and the spotlight slid away from him down his pants leg. The light landed on the Marquis of Brunn, the piano player. The Marquis's skin glistened like a piece of black seaweed. Then the light was back on Kid Jones. He felt hot, and he thought, I stink of sweat. The talcum he had dabbed on his face after he shaved felt like a constricting layer of cement, a thin layer, but definitely cement. No air could get through to his skin. He reached for his handkerchief and felt the powder and the sweat mix as he mopped his face. Then he bowed again and again. Like one of those things you pull the string and it jerks goes through the motion of dancing, pull it again and it kicks, yeah, he thought. You were hot, all right. The go-go gals ate you up and you haven't any place to go. Since this morning, you haven't had any place to go. I'm leaving, it's the guy who plays the piano. I'm in love with the Marquis of Brunn. He plays such sweet piano. I'm leaving, leaving, leaving. He stared at the Marquis of Brunn for a long moment. Then he stood up and bowed again and again. Peter Francis James performed Solo on the Drums by Anne Petrie. Whoa. Petrie is such a poetic writer, and you really get a sense of the way that language, when it's functioning as it does in this story, can dissolve both time and space. It's so powerful that it cuts right through what's in front of you and takes you someplace that's beyond the immediate moment. When we return, real-life couple Claire Danes and Hugh Dancy take one another on in a marital spat by Anton Chekhov. I'm Meg Wallitzer. You're listening to Selected Shorts, recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide.
Welcome back. This is Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. I'm Meg Wallitzer. The first half of our show was packed with satires and sagas of the stage, but if you missed any of them or want to hear them again and again, we've got you covered. You can find this show and many others on our website, selectedshorts.org. There, find the subscribe to podcast button, and you'll see links for Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. And please, if you like the show, share Selected Shorts with your friends and followers. This week, our show is dedicated to stories of the theater, the rituals, the personalities, and the ineffable connection between performer and audience. Our final story comes from Russian short story master Anton Chekhov. And really, who better? His stories are funny, perceptive, and heartbreaking, and he wrote indelible plays including The Seagull, which proves he knew more than a little about showbiz types. I first saw The Seagull at the Williamstown Theater Festival when I was 15. It starred a very young Blythe Danner and Frank Langella, and it felt big and emotionally exciting. Chekhov's stories can feel intensely concentrated, like a bouillon cube of human experience, which I might add may be the first time the words bouillon cube and human experience have been used in the same sentence. Both the plays and stories are often concerned with characters and their humanness, There tends to be great, delicate wit, and there might be an unexpected thrust to the heart. Something significant always happens to the people on the page and on the stage, and it also happens to you. As this piece is about a unique theatrical couple, we needed a unique theatrical couple to bring it to life, and that we got. Claire Danes starred in Homeland and has played everyone from Juliet to Temple Grandin. Hugh Dancy is known for series including Hannibal and The Good Fight, and for plays including Venus in Fur. And while Danes and Dancy are not much like their fictional counterparts, it's worth mentioning that they've both performed on big Broadway stages and that they happen to be married. Here are Claire Danes and Hugh Dancy performing He and She by Anton Chekhov. nomads. Only Paris is graced with their presence for months. They are stingy to Berlin, Vienna, Napoli, Madrid, and other capitals. In Paris, they feel quasi at home. For them, Paris is the capital, their residence, and all the rest of Europe is a boring, pointless province, which is best seen through the lowered curtains of grand hotels or from the stage. They're not old, but they've already been to all the European capitals two or three times. They're bored with Europe. They've begun to talk about a trip to America, and will continue to talk about it until someone persuades them that her voice is not so splendid that it must be shared on both hemispheres. (laughs) It's hard to catch a glimpse of them. You can't see them on the streets because they travel in carriages, and they travel in the evening or at night when it's already dark. They sleep until lunchtime. They usually awaken in poor spirits and do not receive anyone. They receive visitors only occasionally, at odd moments, backstage or at dinner. You could see her on postcards, which are for sale. On postcards, she is a great beauty. (laughs) Although she's never been beautiful. Do not believe her postcards. She is hideously ugly. Most people see her on stage. 
But on stage, she's unrecognizable. White face, rouge, eyeshadow, and someone else's hair cover her face like a mask. It's the same at her concerts. When she plays Margarita, this 27-year-old, wrinkled, lumbering woman with a nose covered in freckles looks like a slender, lovely 17-year-old girl. On stage, she couldn't look less like herself. Should you want to see them, wangle an invitation to attend a luncheon given in her honor or occasionally given by her before they depart from one capital for another. Getting an invitation isn't as easy as it might seem at first. Only the chosen few sit around her luncheon table. The chosen few include such gentlemen as reviewers, social climbers passing themselves off as reviewers, local singers, directors, band leaders, music lovers and devotees with their hair slicked back over bald spots, theater habitués, and hangers-on who were invited thanks to their gold, their silver, or their bloodlines. These luncheons are not at all boring. They're quite interesting to an observer. Dining with them once or twice is worth it. The famous among them, and there are many, eat and talk. They're informal, neck turned one way, head the other, and an elbow on the table. The older ones even pick their teeth. The newspaper men grab the chairs closest to her. They're almost all drunk, and they take too many liberties, acting as if they'd known her forever. Just a bit more to drink, and they'd step out of line. They make loud jokes, drink, and interrupt each other, always with a pardon, make high-flown toasts, and don't seem to care if they make fools of themselves. Some of them lever themselves across the table with great courtesy and kiss her hand. The social climbers, passing themselves off as reviewers, chat in a patronizing tone with the music lovers and devotees. The music lovers and devotees are silent. They are envious of the newspaper men, smile beatifically, and drink only red wine, which is often quite good at the luncheons. She, the queen of the table, is dressed in attire that is modest but terribly expensive. A large diamond glitters under lacy chiffon on her neck. She wears a massive, smooth bracelet on each wrist. Her hairdo is highly controversial. Ladies like it, men do not. She beams at all her fellow diners. She can smile at each person, speak with everyone, nod her head sweetly at each person at the table. If you look at her expression, you think that she's sitting with some of her closest and dearest friends. At the end of the luncheon, she gives some of them her postcards. Right at the table, she writes the name and surname of the lucky recipient on the back and autographs it. Naturally, she speaks French and switches to other languages at the end of the meal. Her English and German are comically bad, but poor language skills sound sweet coming from her. Indeed, she's so sweet that you can forget for a while how hideously ugly she is. <laughs> and him? Le mari d'elle? Well, he sits five chairs from her where he drinks a lot, eats a lot, is silent a lot, rolls the bread into little balls and rereads the labels on the bottles. You look at him and think that he has nothing to do, that he's bored, lazy, and sick of it all. He's extremely fair with bald streaks. Women, wine, sleepless nights, and traipsing all over the world have taken a toll on his face and left deep wrinkles in their wake. He's not even 35 years old, but looks 
older. His face seems to have been pickled and kvass. <laughs> His eyes are fine, but lazy. Once he was not hideous, but now he is. <laughs> Bowed legs, sallow hands, a hairy neck. In Europe, they gave him the odd nickname of Pram because of his crooked legs and strange gait. In his frock coat, he looks like a wet jackdaw with a dry tail. The diners pay no attention to him. He returns the favor. If you're at the luncheon, look at them, that husband and wife, observe them, and tell me what brought them together and keeps them together. After you look at them, you'll reply more or less like this. She's a famous singer, and he's just the husband of a famous singer. Or, to use backstage jargon, he is the husband of his wife. <laughs> she earns up to 80,000 a year in Russian money, and he does nothing, so he has time to be her servant. She needs an accountant and someone to deal with the theater owners, contracts, and agreements. She only spends time with her adoring public and does not stoop to deal with the box office proceeds or the prosaic side of her work. She has no time for that, so she needs him. She, she needs him as a lackey, a, a servant. She'd get rid of him if she could take care of things herself. He gets a substantial salary from her. I mean, she doesn't know the value of money. And like two times two is four, together with the maid, he robs her, fritters away her money, goes on wild benders, and very likely puts away something for a rainy day and is as pleased with his place as a worm on a juicy apple. He'd leave her if she didn't have any money. That's what everyone who sees them at a luncheon thinks and says about them. They think and say that since they can't get to the heart of their relationship and can only judge by appearances. To them, she is a diva and they avoid him like a pygmy covered in toad slime. But, actually, that European diva is tied to that toad by the most enviable, noble bond. This is what he writes. People ask why I love this virago. This woman truly is not worthy of love, and neither is she worthy of hatred. You shouldn't pay a whit of attention to her. You ought to ignore her very existence. To love her, you must be either me or insane, which is, in the end, one and the same thing. She's not pretty. When I married her, she was hideously ugly, and now she's even worse. She, she has no forehead. In place of eyebrows, there are two barely noticeable lines above her eyes, and instead of eyes, there are two shallow crevices. Nothing shines out of those crevices. Not intelligence, not desire, not passion. She has a potato nose. Her mouth is small and pretty, but she has terrible teeth. She has no bust or waist. And that last floor is covered up prettily enough by her fiendish ability to lace herself up in a corset with extraordinary agility. She is short and stout. She is flabby. En masse, her figure has one flaw that I consider the worst of all, a total absence of femininity. I 
do not consider skin pallor and physical weakness to be feminine. And in that, I do not share the views of a great many people. She's not a lady or a woman of fine breeding. She's a shopkeeper with bad manners. When she walks, she waves her arms around. When she sits, she crosses her legs and rocks back and forth. When she lies down, she raises her legs and so on. Uh, she's slovenly. Her suitcases are a prime example. She throws clean underclothes in with soiled ones. Cuffs with shoes and my boots. New corsets with broken ones. We never receive anyone because our rooms are always a filthy mess. But why well, tell you about it? Just look at her. When she wakes up at noon and lazily crawls out from under the covers, you'd never guess that she was a woman with the voice of a nightingale, her hair unbrushed and, and snarled, her eyes puffy with sleep in a nightgown, torn at the shoulders, barefoot, hunched over, and surrounded by a cloud of yesterday's tobacco smoke. Is that your notion of a nightingale? She drinks. She drinks like a sailor, whenever and whatever. She's been drinking for a long time. If she didn't drink, she'd be better than Adelina Patti, or at least as good. She ruined half of her career because of her drinking, and she'll ruin the other half soon enough. Some nasty Germans taught her to drink beer, and now she won't go to sleep without drinking two or three bottles before bed. If she didn't drink, she wouldn't have gastritis. She is impolite, which the students, who sometimes invite her to their concerts, can testify to. She loves advertising. Advertisements cost us several thousand francs every year. I loathe advertising with all my being. No matter how expensive that silly advertisement is, it is always worth less than her voice. My wife likes it when she's patted on the head. She doesn't like to hear the truth about herself unless it's praise. For her, a Judas kiss that is paid for is finer than honest criticism. She has no sense of dignity whatsoever. She is intelligent, but her intelligence is untrained. Her brain, flabby and torpid, lost its plasticity long ago. She's capricious and fickle. She doesn't have a single firm conviction. Yesterday, she said that money is nothing. The purpose of life is not money. And today, she's giving concerts in four places because there's nothing on earth more important than money. And tomorrow, she'll say what she said yesterday. She doesn't want to learn anything about her homeland. She has no political heroes, no favorite newspapers, no beloved writers. She's rich but doesn't help the poor. In fact, she often shortchanges milliners and hairdressers. She has no heart. A thoroughly wicked woman. But look at that virago when she's made up, corseted and every hair in place, as she approaches the footlights to begin her duel with nightingales and larks as they welcome the May dawn. Such dignity and such loveliness in her swan-like walk. Look at her, look, carefully, I beg you. When she first raises her hand and opens her mouth, the crevices are transformed 
into enormous eyes, glimmering with passion. Nowhere else will you find such magnificent eyes. When she, my wife, begins to sing, when the first trills fly through the air, when I begin to feel my tumultuous soul quietening under the influence of those marvelous sounds, then look at my face and you'll understand the secret of my love. Isn't she magnificent? I ask my neighbors. They say, yes, but that's not enough for me. I want to destroy anyone who might think that this extraordinary woman is not my wife. I forget everything that came before, and I live only in the present. Do you see what an artist she is? How much profound meaning she puts in every one of her gestures. She understands everything. Love, hatred, the human soul. It's no wonder that the applause nearly brings the theater down. After the last act, I escort her from the theater. She is pale, exhausted, having lived an entire life in one evening. I'm also pale and fatigued. We get into the carriage and go to the hotel. In the hotel, without a word and fully dressed, she throws herself onto the bed. I silently sit on the edge of the bed and kiss her hand. That evening, she doesn't push me away. Together, we fall asleep. We sleep until morning and wake up to curse each other. <laughs> oh, do you know when else I love her? When she's at balls or luncheons. On those occasions, I love the fine actress in her. What an actress she must be to get around and overcome her own nature the way she does. I don't recognize her at those silly luncheons. She turns a plucked chicken into a peacock. This letter was written in a drunken, barely legible hand. It was written in German, peppered with spelling mistakes. This is what she wrote. You ask if I love that boy. Yes, sometimes. Why? <laughs> oh, God only knows. He really is not handsome or likable. Men like him are not born for requited love. <laughs> Men like him can only buy love. They never get it for free. See for yourself. He's drunk as a sailor day and night. His hands shake, which is very unattractive. When he's drunk, he's ill-tempered and gets into fights. When he's sober, he lies on whatever's around and doesn't say a word. He always dresses very shabbily, although he has plenty of funds for clothing. Half of my earnings slip through his hands. Who knows where? I'll never check up on him. Accountants are so very expensive for poor married artists. Husbands receive half the box office take for their work. I mean, he doesn't spend it on women. I, I know that. He looks down on women. He's lazy. I've never seen him do anything. <laughs> he drinks, eats, and sleeps, and that's all. 
He never graduated from school. In his first year, he was expelled from the university for insolence. He's not a nobleman. He's the very worst, a German. <laughs> I don't like the German people. 99 out of 100 Germans are idiots, and the last one is a genius. I learned that from a prince, a German, with some French blood. He smokes repulsive tobacco. But he does have some good qualities. He loves my noble art more than he loves me. If they announce before a performance that I can't sing due to illness, that is, if I'm, if I'm acting up, he stomps around clenching his fists and looking like death. He's not a coward and he's not afraid of people. I love this quality most of all in people. I'll tell you a, a little story from my past. It was in Paris a year after I graduated from the conservatory. I was still very young and learning to sing. And every night I caroused as much as my youthful strength would allow. And of course, I caroused in a group. On one spree, as I was clinking glasses with my distinguished admirers, a very unattractive boy I didn't know walked up to the table, looked me right in the eye, and asked, Why do you drink? We laughed. My boy wasn't embarrassed. The second question was more insolent and came straight from the heart. Why are you laughing? These servants pouring you glass after glass of wine won't give you a cent when you ruin your voice from drink and lose all your money. Such cheek. My guests became very upset. Now, I seated the boy next to me and ordered him wine. It turned out this worker from the Temperance Society enjoys wine very much indeed. <laughs> Apropos, I call him a boy only because he has a very small mustache. <laughs> I paid for his impudence with marriage. Most of the time he says nothing. When he speaks, it's usually just one word. When he uses a chest voice to say this word, it catches in his throat and his cheek twitches. He might say the word when he's sitting with some people at a luncheon or a ball. When someone, it does not matter who, tells a lie, he raises his head and without a glance and not the least bit ill at ease, he says, untrue. <laughs> That's his favorite word. What woman could resist the glint in his eye when he says that word? <laughs> I love that word. I love the way his eyes shine and his face twitches. Not just anyone can say that fine, bold word, but my husband says it everywhere and any time. I love him sometimes, and that Sometimes, as far as I recall, is, is when he utters that fine word. But really, God knows why I love him. I'm a bad psychologist, and in this case, I suspect a psychological issue is involved. <laughs> that letter is written in French, in splendid, almost masculine handwriting, 
and without a single grammatical error. That was He and She by Anton Chekhov, translated by Michelle A. Birdie, read by Hugh Dancy and Claire Danes. Chekhov is so good at finding joy and sorrow in the exact same place. While bitterness and resentment may dominate that fictional marriage, there's devotion and love there, too. Maybe you're itching for a live theatrical experience, and if so, we'd love to see you at one of our shows. We tour the show all around the country, or you can come visit us at our home theater of Symphony Space in New York City. Our complete schedule is at selectedshorts.org. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Thanks for joining me for Selected Shorts. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan. Our literary team is Matthew Love, Drew Richardson, and Vivienne Woodward. Our director of marketing is Mary Shimkin. Our radio producers are Sarah Montague and Jenny Falcon. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dungannon Foundation, creator of the Ray Award for the short story. Support is also provided by the NYC COVID-19 Response and Impact Fund in the New York Community Trust, the Howard Gilman Foundation, the Schubert Foundation, the Sharina Endowment Fund, the Blanchette Hooker Rockefeller Fund, the Achelis and Bodman Foundation, the Henry Nias Foundation, the Consolidated Edison Company of New York, the Michael Tuck Foundation, the Vida Foundation, the Axe Houghton Foundation, the Lemberg Foundation, and the Grodsons Fund. Selected Shorts is also made possible by the National Endowment for the Arts and with public funds from the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of Governor Kathy Hochul and the New York State Legislature. Symphony Space thanks our generous supporters, including our board of directors, producer circle, and members who make our programs possible with their annual support. Selected Shorts is produced and distributed by Symphony Space. Symphony Space.